we doing? We in it. <gasps> we out here. What's going on? Nothing. What's going on with you? Nothing. I mean, that's always good. No news is good news, right? Look at how exciting an adult we are. I wouldn't go that far. No? No. I'm barely an adult, if any. If at all? If at all. <laughs> sure. Well, with that wonderful intro done, what are we to talking about? To the podcast that is crime culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, your girl is on a roll. So today we are talking about the West Virginia Mine Wars. Um, they're also called the West Virginia Coal Wars, the West Virginia Miner Wars. It was another one I saw. Basically, we talk about mines and children. Today we are going to discuss the fucked up, should be illegal, most of the time is, but sometimes they find little loopholes, practice of union busting. Okay. Always a tie-in. And Moida. There's always Moida. Moida. But Moida doesn't take the front Near seat dear. for once. Murder. Muck duck. Um, but yeah. So hopping right into it. We're going to start on March 12th, 1883. So we're going to go back a little bit. Hell yeah. And that is when the first train car of coal was transported on the Norfolk and Western Railway from the town of Pocahontas, Virginia. And this is what launched the, like coal mining trend basically it it resulted in an economic and industrial boom that turned what was formerly just like farmland in what is now west virginia into just a booming area of like a higher a higher population more jobs like these mm -hmm. towns were built by the coal industry Yep. Schools, churches, businesses, everything came from just the coal fields of, we're going to be talking mostly about like southwestern West Virginia. Well, we talked about that kind of a little bit when um, we covered Centralia. That was yes. another big mining town that yes. the town kind of disappeared when the mines disappeared. Right, right. And um, the, these these towns have not quite disappeared, though I will say that one of them, when I was researching, I believe has a population of 500 people. So they're definitely That's not little. bustling, yes, but they're, they're small but mighty. Um, so basically, from that moment on, like demand from coal for coal kept increasing, increasing, increasing until by the early 1900s, it was powering industry, railroads, cars, um, heating homes and businesses just like it was being used for everything and yeah. so with that companies were really capitalizing this on this and you would think that the miners then would be making a mint because it's in such demand but you would be wrong mm. so west virginia miners they worked in company mines and were required to lease their tools and equipment from those companies and the cost of that was taken out of their pay as was or, or yeah as was rent for company housing where they were required to live um mm -hmm. so yeah nothing nothing to go wrong there um but because the coal companies had this monopoly with their stores they owned they basically owned the entire town so they just jacked up their prices and especially of the things that m miners were required to have that they needed like food um and basically they 
just guaranteed that these miners would not find alternatives elsewhere by paying them what they what what they called scrip which is like script movie script without the t and that was like their own currency basically and surprise could only be used at their stores um and if you're being paid in this in this currency it's not like you can walk into a general store that's not owned by one of these corporations and go hi i would like to buy yeah Yeah. it's like Um, monopoly money it is it's quite literally monopoly money just not in the fun board game regard um so this meant that any groceries provisions toiletries like any necessities clothes none of these could be bought from anywhere but these stores and they were controlling the prices and they were controlling the prices (laughs) and whenever miners would lobby for wage increases because they were living like so poorly because the companies owned the houses the companies owned the stores the companies paid them like nothing and And whenever they would these are like the most important people yes in like the most important workers are getting the thing that is literally fueling everything yes and risking their lives to do so which we'll get into in a bit but yeah so they would lobby for like wage increases because they were like we can't like there were instances where like miners would have to go to we'll talk about unions in a bit but unions would like provide for example like loaves of bread or bags of flour or things like that because they could not afford to feed their families with these scripts Hmm. that's how expensive everything was and how little they were paid but when they would argue for like a wage increase the companies would give it to them after a lot of like hemming and hawing and everything but then they would just jack up the prices at their stores even higher to make up for the lost money (laughs) yeah um sounds a little bit like chipotle uh if you kill all of your workers you're back to square one well, that's interesting that you say that because one miner, I didn't include this, but one miner was interviewed um, like many years later and he said something to the effect, or not many years later, it's the, he, he's the husband of the founder of a museum, co-founder of a museum, which I'll get into. He's, he's a miner, he's a multi-generational miner. Okay. And he said basically like how it was, was if you, if a mule died on your watch in the mines, like, and you were in charge you could lose your job but if Mm. a man died on your watch they would just find a replacement jeez yeah they they did not care whether or not these people lived or died wow um and it should also i i'll mention this later too but it should also be said that part of the reason why these people like why they didn't care that these people lived or died was many of them were immigrants um specifically from italy and hungary which that makes them like they were not that those those demographics of people were not they were seen as like second class citizens back then yeah and also black people were coming from the deeper south in search of a better life and more money Mm. and they are are still but were treated terribly yeah and so it was just like these these poor like groups of people they were already seen as like they didn't matter Mm. um so Miners were also paid through a system called cribbing, which basically meant that they were paid by the ton, and a ton is approximately 2,000 pounds, and normally I convert pounds to, um, oh, forgive me, to kilograms for our international listeners, but for whatever reason, I didn't do it this time, um, which I don't know why I didn't do it this time, but I'm sorry, I'm doing it now, I'm sorry. And it's about 907 kilograms. 
Okay. And so they were paid based on each ton of coal that was successfully mined. Mm-hmm. And each car that transported coal to and from the mines supposedly held a specific amount of coal. But what the coal companies would do is make the cars have a capacity to hold, say, 3,000 pounds of coal. So okay. one and a half tons. Okay. But they would tell the miners that the cars could only hold 2,000 pounds. So then they would only pay them for those 2,000 pounds. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. So let's say, like, they do five cars of coal or whatever. Uh-huh. And they're thinking that they're getting paid for 10,000 tons of coal when actually they're getting paid the equivalent of 10,000 pounds. Uh, yeah. Wait. Yes. 10,000 pounds of coals. All right. It's a, it's been a minute, okay? I see the smoke coming from your ears. Uh, I hate math. <laughs> I hate math so much. Um, they're getting paid for 10,000 pounds of coal when they are actually getting, harvesting 15,000 pounds of coal. The amount that they're being shafted is astounding. Oh, and it's getting worse. We're not even done with them just, being shafted yet. Just don't pay them anything at this point. Like, well, that's it's funny what, you should say that. Oh my god, it's funny you should say that because on top of shafting them in terms of saying how much coal they're mining, taking out the leasing fees and the rent from their paychecks, the mines employed what were called check weighmen to see how much w- mixed in with the coal was slate or rock or stuff that could not be used because they were like okay we're only going to charge you for the coal that you bring in not like if there's other debris that's in there too which okay yeah. that makes sense except the companies employed these men these checkway men they were not miners they were not employed by the miners uh-huh. and so therefore they could basically say oh yeah 1000 pounds of this was actually not coal so you're only getting half of what you thought you were getting when in actuality, it, there was, say, only 500 pounds of it. And that, that turns into a portion of a portion of a portion because exactly. they're mining X amount. They're getting told it's Y amount. And then yes. another person's telling them it's Z amount. So, like, yes. it, it just dwindled. By the time it gets to, like, the higher ups, it's literally, like, one Santa's piece of coal. Yeah. But <laughs> actually, that's really what it comes down to. And then... I read somewhere, I don't know how true this is, it, the scripts, like, you could think, okay, well, they're metal scripts, why can't they just, like, redeem those for something? Yeah. And I believe they were worth, like, 75% more when used at a company store. Okay. As opposed to saying to, like, a bank or whoever. I don't yeah. know who would do the conversion. Hey, I have this script. So, like, let's say a script is worth a dollar at the company store. Uh-huh. If you took it to, like, a general store or anything like that, it would be worth a quarter. Uh, okay. So, they're really, really getting shafted. Yeah. But wait, there's more! Oh, my God. So, not only are these miners not being paid fairly, but their working conditions were also terrible, which I know I mentioned before, but just to get into how terrible. It's a fucking mine. It's a fucking mine, but also, so mines in general, yes, mining is dangerous and it's very difficult work. And now more than ever, it's coming out that like these workers are getting like black lung disease and things like that. Yeah. But 
the state of West Virginia had the weakest laws for mining safety regulations and proper conditions compared to all other mining states. And the numbers also show how that went. Um, From 1890 to 1912, the death rates of miners in West Virginia were higher than those in any other state. And they were among the deaths of miners were among the highest among industry workers as a whole. So not Mm. just miners, but they were at the top. Yeah. And West Virginia had more fatal coal mining accidents from tragedies like roof collapses, explosions and fires than any other state. Mm. In fact, in on December 6th, 1907, an explosion at a mine owned by the Fairmont Coal Company in Monaga, Marion County, killed 361 people. Whoa. Yeah. So according to WVCulture.org, one historian they spoke with said that in retrospect, a U.S. soldier serving during World War II was statistically more likely to survive in battle than a West Virginian was to survive working in a coal mine. Wow. Yes. Yeah. That is wild. Fucked, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like not to be dramatic, but these mines were basically like the Amazon warehouses of the 1800s. And early 1900s. So obviously with such shitty conditions, the miners decided they needed to take a stand and unionize. Mm -hmm. So in the mid to late 1800s, they started focusing on this and began to organize strikes to focus on various issues, like take your pick of what issues they wanted to have dealt with. But after multiple failed attempts to merge all of these small unions into a national organization, the Union Mine Workers of America was finally established in 1890 in Columbus, Ohio. And by 1900, so over the course of 10 years, they successfully organized unions in Ohio, obviously, Mm -hmm. um, Illinois, Indiana, and Pennsylvania. But their attempts to organize West Virginia failed in 1892, 1894, 1895, and 1897. Jeez. And then finally, they were recognized by some groups in West Virginia's Kanawha, no, Kanawha, New River Field, I can't speak today, West Virginia's Kanawha New River Coal Field in 1902. So it took over a decade for some, like for part of West Virginia, to recognize these mines, this union. And so then that resulted in the establishment of the Kanawha County Coal Operators Association a year later, which was like basically a union busting group created by the owners of these coal mines. Mm Mm-hmm. So the KCCOA then hired the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency in Bluefield, West Virginia. Um, and they were they were like um, kind of like private security and they mostly did rail work. But then they moved on to also doing coal mines, specifically okay. harassing union organizers by employing these these detectives as mine guards, as they were called which in turn caused the UNWA to tell union organizers, hey, just stop working in Southern West Virginia. Okay. Like, just stop doing it. So by 1912, the union had lost control of much of the Kanawha New River coal field, and the UMWA miners on Paint Creek in Kanawha County demanded that their pay be raised to match that of other miners in the area. It was one of the lowest pay rates in the area and especially in the north they were getting paid much more and again this is like people are relying on coal it's not like they are hurting for money yeah um so the coal company denied it 
And on April 18th, 1912, the Paint Creek Miners, along with their with the Cabin Creek Miners, who had lost their union, started what would, spoiler alert, end up being one of the most violent strikes in U.S. history. Ooh. So the miners' demands were by no re- means unreasonable. Uh, they asked for an eight-hour workday. The fact that you have to ask for an eight-hour workday. Yeah, it, that's terrifying. What the hell were they doing? Very long hours. Um, the recognition of their constitutional rights to free speech and assembly. Oh, my God. The cessation of blacklisting union organizers. The right to organize. The establishment of company store alternatives. The termination of the practice of using mine guards. The installation of accurate scales at the mines. The prohibition of cribbing. And permission for unions to hire their own checkway men to guarantee that the company's checkway men were not cheating the miners out of what they were really owed. Yeah. That's a huge conflict of interest. Yeah. All of these things are very reasonable. Yeah. (laughs) It's basically just like, pay us what we deserve. Treat us nice. Not even nice. Just treat us like like human beings. Yeah. Like, uh, my life is worth more than a mule. A mule. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) I mean, love all the mules, but... Love to mules, but like... The fact that you can get fired for a mule dying and just step over a dying man is ridiculous. I I know, it's fucked. But, so when the strike began, the coal companies evicted the miners and their families from the company housing and brought in the mine guards to enforce it and then to just afterwards make these people's lives miserable. So these families were then forced to live in, like, canvas tent colonies and other, like, makeshift homes that they would set up in these colonies and they lived like paupers as these mine guards continued to harass and intimidate them even after they have left the housing they leave they've been evicted whatever these mine guards are like following them to their little villages that they've been forced to create Mm. to harass them further which of course only makes tensions run higher uh labor historian hoyt n wheeler later wrote quote Firing men for union activities, beating and arresting union organizers, increasing wages to stall the union's organizational drive, and a systematic campaign of terror produced an atmosphere in which violence was inevitable, end quote. Yeah. So soon the strike got national attention. Uh, Labor leaders like American labor movement activist Mary Harris, a.k.a. Mother Jones, Mm -hmm. traveled to West Virginia to show her support, um, among others. Uh, according to James Green's novel, The Devil is Here in These Hills, a U.S. district attorney, quote, named her the most dangerous woman in America because she could, by her own words and deeds, persuade hundreds of men to walk out the mines, end quote. Hmm. And that's exactly what she did, because this woman was basically such a badass. And okay. she was like this loud, bold Irish immigrant who did not give a fuck about what anybody thought Hell and yeah. spoke with an amount of obscenities that makes me look like a nun. <laughs> and she knew she was so smart and she was so driven. And so she knew how to fire up a crowd. And she really encouraged these miners to not give up and to fight for their rights. Mm-hmm. So besides Mother Jones, the UMWA sent speechwriters and they donated weapons and ammunition to the strikers as their form of support. Um, because like that's that's pretty much that's the most that I think you can do. Yeah. And it was covered by the press. Um, like I said, it got national attention. And Chatham University historian Lewis Martin, who co-founded the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum, which we'll get into in a bit. Okay. 
He said of the press coverage, quote, national papers sold a lot of copies by portraying the area as a lawless land where the mountaineers were inherently violent. This was a romanticized version of events, creating an Old West type image of Appalachia. This obviously didn't lead to widespread public support for the miners in their struggles. So the fact that they're getting much support at all is a huge deal. Uh-huh. Like that they're that these labor organizers are helping and that their union is helping because the public really was not on their side. OK, so as tensions continued to rise on both sides, things came to a head when 6000 union miners that were on strike declared their intention to kill the mine guards uh-huh. and also destroy company equipment. They were like, okay, you won't get rid of it. We'll do it ourselves. Oh, you're worried that like the death of a mule is going to cost you some money. We'll just get rid of all of the stuff that you're cheating us with and then see how much money that costs you. So at that point on September 2nd, 1912, West Virginia Governor William E. Glasscock. I'm going to pause so that we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there we go. Okay. And we're done. He imposed martial law and dispatched 1,200 state militia to disarm both the miners and the mine guards. Just like a glass cock. Just like it. Goddamn. Ultimately, they seized 2020, or 225,000 rounds of ammunition. Oof. 1,872 high-powered rifles. Oh, 556, hey. 556 pistols. Uh-huh. And a large number of bayonets brass knuckles and daggers from both groups jesus christ they were ready to fucking rumble okay okay well this then. is this is some like sharks versus jets shit i was just okay? gonna say jets gonna have their way tonight right <laughs> so the governor ended up having to do this three times over the course of the strike because of how violent things were getting I don't know if you gasped because of me or if you dropped something, but I'll I didn't. I guess because of you. Three okay. times they had to be Three like, times. okay, let me take Three times, your- get the paddy wagon. Yeah. <laughs> like <that's- laughs> Let's just take truckloads of weapons away. Right? So on the evening of February 7th, 1913, an armored train that had earned the, na- the nickname the Bull Moose Special. Which is what I will be calling Felix from now on. Not because of (laughs) the connotation. Like, it's a fucked up... This is a fucked up story. I'm not going to lie to you. But just, like, clearly the the sheer size of this train is probably the cat equivalent to Felix, I would say. Or the the train equivalent to Felix. You know what I mean. So, it was led by coal operator Quinn Morton. Or coal mine operator Quinn Morton. So, he's, like, the owner of one of these mines. Uh Uh-huh. It was led by him and Kanawha County Sheriff Bonner Hill... And they drove it through a miner's tent colony at Holly Point, at Holly Grove on Paint Creek. Ooh. They drove it through this village of people. Yeah. So mine guards were on the train and they then began shooting at the residents of this colony, which resulted in the murder of striker Sesco Estep. Mm. After the attack, Morton allegedly wanted to, quote, go back and give them another round, end quote. <sighs> That's the owner of the mine. Okay. But Sheriff Hill and others talked him out of it. So then at the encouragement of Mother Jones, the miners retaliated by dynamiting railways and attacking a mine guard encampment in Mucklow, West Virginia, which is now present day Gallagher. Okay. So the battle lasted hours and resulted in the deaths of about 16 people, most of whom were mine guards. 
And less than a week later, on February 13th, Governor Glasscock, pausing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. He placed Mother Jones under house arrest at Pratt for inciting a riot. Okay. Even though she was pushing 70. Okay. And she had pneumonia. Like, deep in the throes of pneumonia. And he was like, this woman is a danger to society. So he put her on house arrest. Okay. So then on March 4th, um, so like, not even a month later... Dr. Henry D. Hatfield was sworn in as governor, and after he personally examined Jones, because, you know, he was a doctor, he decided to keep her under house arrest for over two months, although he did release over 30 other individuals who had been arrested under martial law during that two-month period in which she was under house arrest. Okay. So on April 14th, Governor Hatfield issued a series of terms for settlement of the strike. This included a nine-hour workday which was already in effect in other areas of the state. It was just this one section that the coal mine operators were like, no. Um, it also included granting the requests for cessation of blacklisting union organizers, uh, union organizers, union organizers, Okay. the right to shop in businesses other than company stores and the right for unions to hire their own checkway men to avoid being cheated by the coal companies. Okay. So on April 25th, he ordered the striking miners, many of whom, again, are European immigrants or black people who had moved from southern states, to accept his terms or they would be deported, either from the state or from the country. Wow. Yeah. So the Paint Creek miners agreed to the terms, but the Cabin Creek miners continued to strike because the governor had failed to address two of their most important demands, the right to organize and the termination of mine guards. Yeah. Again, a train full of mine guards just ran through. Like, yeah, yeah, we got to get rid of these motherfuckers. Let's do it. Also, the mine guards were basically like employed. I'm not saying this isn't their fault because you're a shitty person, but they were also led to believe that, like, okay, well, if we give these miners what we want, the big scary thing at that point was communism. And they were like, they're, this is communist what they're asking for and the russians are going to come and it's the same that's the same fucking vitriol that we've heard in the 50s during the mccarthy era it's the same fucking vitriol that we heard in the 80s during all of that like mr gorbachev meh 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 it's the same stuff we're hearing now like we will forever be afraid of russia for whatever fucking reason please don't come for me russia um so yeah it's just like I'm not saying it's not their fault, but, like, these people clearly, like, they think they're fighting communism, and therefore that is, like, putting a veil over their eyes in terms of, we're not fighting people, we're fighting communists. Yeah, we're not fighting human beings, we're fighting an idea. Yeah, and also, they're not even fucking communists! It's not communists to want a living wage, and to not be forced to live and shop from somewhere by the owners of the places where you live and shop. It's yeah. like, it's, it's, and none of these are outrageous. A, it, to be working in dangerous conditions in a mine for over nine hours. Yes. So after a few more violent outbursts, uh, outbursts, the strike was ultimately settled at the end of July, 1913, after the governor agreed to have the mine guards removed from both Paint Creek and Cabin Creek. Good. So the corrupt UMWA leaders were removed from power and replaced with a group of young men who were elected by their fellow miners. 
And in November 1916, Frank Keeney was elected as the UMWA District 17 president, and Fred Mooney was elected as the UMWA District 17 secretary treasurer. Meanwhile, remember those names, but meanwhile, West Virginia coal coal companies fortified their systems in case there was ever another strike or, God forbid, their workers wanted to be treated fairly. It just... So they all know that this is more of a pause. Like, they... It's like, I don't even know what to call it. So the next six years or so were relatively peaceful and it was World War One, So everybody was kind of too distracted. Um, a lot of people were off at war. At, during this time, the miners saw a significant increase in pay because there was another boom in the coal industry because of the war. They needed yeah. to power these like machines. But after the war ended in 1919, the economic recession that followed caused coal companies to issue mass layoffs and attempt to reduce the miners' wages to what they were before the war. Okay. No takesies backsies. Like, no. That's, that's fucking bullshit. But at this point, the largest non-unionized coal region in the eastern United States was West Virginia's Logan and Mingo counties. So the UMWA targeted southwestern West Virginia as being its top priority. Like, we need to assemble these people. Mm -hmm. So the Logan Coal Operators Association paid Logan County Sheriff Don Chafin to keep union organizers out of the area. And so Sheriff Chafin and his men arrested, assaulted, and harassed anybody they suspected of participating in labor meetings. Uh, Chafin even hired a small group of quote-unquote deputies to do this all of whom were paid by the LCOA. So they weren't even like town dep- sheriff's deputies or town deputies. They were basically mine guards in like another outfit. Yeah. <laughs> so by the end of the summer of 1919, stories of the mistreatment of miners at the hands of Sheriff Chafin and his deputies reached Charleston, the capital of West Virginia. And on September 4th, armed miners gathered at Marmot, a town about 10 miles or 16 kilometers outside of Charleston, to march on Logan County in protest. Mm -hmm. Within a day, 5,000 people were gathered. Whoa. Yeah. So Governor John J. Cornwall and Cornwell and Keeney, the UMWA District 17 president, talked most of the miners out of marching under the promise of the government investigating the sheriff's abuse. However, about 1,500 men still marched to Danville, West Virginia, before deciding to turn back. And Governor Cornwell, meanwhile, appointed a commission to lead the investigation. But because... So, these coal companies created these towns. These coal Mm -hmm. companies, much like today, politicians were in their pockets. Yeah. And they basically elected the politicians. And the politicians also knew that. So what I'm saying here is it should come as no surprise that the commission that Cornwell appointed to lead the investigation was basically like, nope, nothing to see here. Hmm. Sheriff Chafin could do nothing wrong ever in his life. Yep. So a few months later, the coal companies decreased the wages of the miners working in southern West Virginia coal fields right about the same time as the U.S. Coal Commission granted a pay raise to union miners in all of West Virginia, except those in the southwestern region. Okay. So, of course, another strike began in the spring of 1920, or either you can call it another strike, you can call it the strike resumed, whatever you want to call it. The striking started again, and this time it was led by non-union miners in Mingo County. 
So after repeated requests for help from the District 17 office on May 6, 1920, Mooney, who was the secretary treasurer Mm -hmm. of the UMWA for that district, and Bill Blizzard, one of the leaders of the 1912 through 1913 strike, spoke to about 3,000 miners at Matawan, West Virginia, which is right along the state's southern border across from Kentucky. It's like Matawan, there's a river, and then there's Kentucky. Okay. So... In response, coal companies began forcing their miners to sign what were called yellow-dogged contracts, which prohibited them from ever joining a union or else they'd be terminated. Okay. So over the next two weeks, about half the men present joined the UMWA anyway, present at these these talks. Um, And on May 19th, 12 Baldwin Feltz private detectives, a.k.a. mine guards, arrived in Matawan ready for a fight. And as had happened before, the miners who had joined the union were evicted from the Stone Cold Mountain, from the Stone Cold. That's what I said. (laughs) The Stone Mountain Coal Company. They were Stone Cold. Um, Stone Mountain Coal Company housing and in prediction of violent conditions, since that's what happened the last time around. Union sympathizer and Matawan police chief Smilin' Sid Hatfield urged Mm -hmm. residents to arm themselves, like protect yourselves, protect your shit, protect each other. Like, I'm on your side. Okay. And he really was. When Lee Feltz, who had arrived with the Baldwin Feltz detectives, and his brother Albert, who had already been in the area, and both of these brothers, you'll notice their last name is Feltz. Yeah. They were brother, they they were siblings of Baldwin Feltz's co-founder, Thomas Feltz. Okay. So they get to this train station, or they get to town, or whatever you want to call it, and they were confronted by Chief Hatfield. Um, allegedly the brothers tried to arrest Hatfield when he attempted to prevent the detectives from evicting the miners, but this caused a battle to break out that left seven detectives and four townspeople dead. And this included both of the Feltz brothers and the town's mayor, Cable C. Testerman, who joined Hatfield in his confrontation against the Baldwin Feltz agents. Mm. This became known as the Matawan Massacre. And instead of deterring miners from striking, it rallied them to officially take a stand. Uh, Two fun facts here. The first fun fact, so that that museum that I keep touching on that we haven't quite gotten to yet, that that is in Matawan. And the building that it is in still has bullet holes from this battle. Yeah. And it's part of like the tour if you ever go to the museum. Okay. Um, But also as a fun fact, probably not really a fun fact, but I just was like, LOL, this is interesting. Chief Hatfield, some people believe that he was allegedly the one who shot the mayor because he married Testerman's widow, Jessie, soon after the death of her husband. Like, a little too soon. All right. If you know what I mean. So, scandal. I don't know whether this is true or not, especially since Testerman was only there to, like, back up Hatfield. And then when they tried to arrest him, apparently was like, no, you can't fucking do that. And then, uh, like, how the story goes is then he got shot, but they never say by whom. Okay. All right. And they're all dead, so they can't. Confirm or deny. So on July 1st, the UMWA miners, which by this point included over 90% of Mingo County, West Virginia miners, they went on strike. Governor Cornwell declared martial law, a lot of martial law, Mm -hmm. um, and he sent over 1,000 special police to Mingo and had many miners arrested under suspicion of union activity, all of which just strengthened the UMWA's claims that the county's miners were under attack. So over the next 13 months, it was basically a war zone in southern West Virginia. Uh, Tech colonies were being attacked. Non-union mines were being blown up with dynamite. 
uh, there were just monumental casualties on both sides. Yeah. So Governor Cornwell and his successor, Gordon Ephraim F. Morgan, that's a mouthful, ultimately declared martial law three separate times. Whoa. Again, a lot of fucking martial law. Yeah. So in late summer 1921, the UMWA's hold in southern West Virginia began to break down. On August 1st, Sheriff Hatfield, who had been acquitted of his crimes in the Matawan Massacre, basically, he was acquitted and got to walk off. And then Thomas Feltz filed a conspiracy charge against him. So Hatfield had to go back to court along with his deputy, Ed Chambers, and they both were accused of conspiracy during a shooting at a Mohawk coal camp. Okay. When they arrived at the McDowell County Courthouse in Welch, West Virginia, they were on the steps going up to their hearing when there was a drive-by shooting by the Baldwin Feltz detectives, Feltz detectives mm. and Hatfield and Chambers were murdered on the spot. Oof. Yes. And you tell me that that's a coincidence. Yeah. That Feltz goes, well, I'm going to sue him for this conspiracy charge that probably won't stick since the last one didn't stick. And then my people are just going to happen to be there with their guns and the guns are just going to happen to go off. Yeah. On the dude who I don't know whether he killed my brothers, but my brothers were part of a battle in which they tried to arrest him and then they ended up dead and he did not. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just so fucked. So, so fucked. So, yeah. Hatfield became something of like a martyr. He was already like a hometown hero, but now he was like a, mar- a martyr to many yeah. of the miners, not just in his area, but just around like in the mining community in general. Yeah. So less than a week after his murder on August 7th, a crowd of anywhere from either 700 to 5,000 people, because the sources that I used, they all had a lot of different information. It's um, quite a range. It's a range. It's a range. Um, they gathered on Capitol grounds in Charleston to protest. Mm-hmm. And Keeney and Blizzard urged the miners to fight back, with Keeney even traveling all over the state for two weeks, urging thousands of miners to march on Logan, declaring, quote, the only way to get your rights is with a high-powered rifle, end quote. Wow. Yes. So on August 20th, miners began assembling at Marmot. Mother Jones, she had a real bad feeling that the march was going to backfire, um, she tried to discourage them. She even went to them saying, okay, I have this telegram. And allegedly the telegram was from President Warren G. Harding. And in it, he promised to help the miners and put a stop to the mine guard system once and for all if they did not march. Okay. However, Keeney told the miners that he had allegedly followed up with the White House and found that the telegram was a fake. So somebody is lying To this day, nobody knows which one was lying. Hmm. So on August 24th, approximately 5,000 men wearing battle attire that ranged from their daily like miners work clothes to their military uniforms from their over from their service overseas during World War One as basically like a reminder of like, look at all we've done for this country. And this is how you treat us. Yeah. So wearing that as well as red paisley bandanas, which fun fact is where the somewhat derogatory term i would say rednecks comes from really that is where it comes from and now i feel bad because i've used the term redneck and i'm like oh no like 
they're saying this about immigrants and black people and impoverished people who are wearing bandanas just so they don't fucking shoot each other because they are going to battle for their rights and like i just i feel so bad and it's truly it was so incredible um like i an anonymous miner for example told elizabeth cat regarding the diversity of the marchers he said quote I call it a darn solid mass of different colors and tribes blended together, woven, bound, interlocked, tongued and grooved and glued together in one body. Well, so like all of these people came together to fight against this injustice. And now redneck is just like a term for somebody who fucks their sister. Hmm. I mean, it's not. But at the same time, tell me that's not what you think of. I always thought redneck had some type of like sunburn connotation oh see i wouldn't have thought that but that makes a little bit of sense because like either way like it that's not the real connotation with rednecks but technically like yeah you don't consider somebody who's not like a working class citizen to be a redneck exactly yeah so that that was oh, what, was what i thought the, i never yeah. i never researched it so i could be a thousand percent wrong same never yeah. researched it and we came from the east coast where like if you weren't from the tri-state area you were a fucking redneck um and tell me i'm wrong tell me i'm wrong that's how definitely that's how we were treated or that's yeah, how we were taught yeah definitely where i grew up and where a lot of like people even uh michael comes from a place where yes i call it the south of the north (laughs) i would yeah i would consider it like the boonies like yes it is there his neighbor is a cow or his parents neighbor but like they live in the same silo from their porch like yeah yeah, it's Wild. wild yeah um but yeah so these people all began marching towards logan county where sheriff chafin was waiting with his little army of his little deputies as well as mine guards state police and company store employees and they began calling themselves the logan defenders what kind of a sad fucking little name is that like it sounds like a peewee soccer team a little bit it does it's so fucking sad it's pathetic like really okay i'm so scared i'm quaking in my fucking boots so yeah, two days later, World War I hero Henry Bandoltz was sent to Charleston by President Harding in response to Governor Morgan's plea for federal military assistance. And he met with the governor, Keeney, Mooney, uh, Keeney and Mooney, and he explained, or he and the governor explained to the UMWA leaders that they and the miners could be charged with treason if the march happened. So that afternoon, Keeney met with the miners at a ball field in Madison, West Virginia, and urged them to turn around. Um, was just like, hey, like, we're in deep fucking shit here. Like, you could go to jail. Like, this is really bad. Like, we can't do this. Um, there's like thousands of these people. Mm-hmm. So some of them ended the march there. However, many continued on because there was just this perfect storm that was happening. So already tensions were high. But then... The special trains that Keeney had arranged for and promised would take the miners back home to Kanawha County, mm-hmm. they were late. So they're just standing there doing nothing. And then on the night of August 27th, state police, as part of these Logan defenders, attacked a group of strikers at Sharples, which was just across the Logan County line, and ended up killing two of them. Mm. 
So in response, approximately 10,000 red bandana wearing miners began marching toward Sharples with the goal of marching to Mingo County to take a stand and also to free their compatriots who had been imprisoned previously for doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So as the miners assembled in the town of Blair, Sheriff Chafin's army, which was now under the command of U.S. National Guard Colonel William Eubank, donned white armbands, which is, I know not the exact same thing as the Nazis, but anytime you've got an armband up in there, I'm a a little little bit like, ooh, yeah. So they have these white armbands on and then took positions on the peak of Blair Mountain, which was like a natural barrier between where the marchers were and where Logan was. It was a little over a mile or about two kilometers south of Sharples. And the miners would have to go through like they can't get around Blair Mountain like uh-huh. they to get to Logan. So what ensued is known as the Battle of Blair Mountain, which is considered the largest insurrection on U.S. soil since the American Civil War. Wow. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. So on August 28th, the marchers took four Logan County deputies and the son of another deputy prisoner. Two nights later... Baptist minister James E. Wilburn organized a small army to help these miners who the following day, they shot and killed three of Chafin's deputies, one of whom was the father of the men of like the men captured. He was the father of one of the men captured in the days before. And his name was John Gore. So one of Wilburn's followers, Eli Kemp, was also killed by a deputy during that battle. The fighting then continued for three days as Colonel Eubank supplied the army with machine guns and brought in biplanes so the defenders could shoot bullets, rain down gas, and drop their little homemade bleach and shrapnel bombs on the Union's headquarters. Hmm. How did we not learn about this in school? Yeah. So on September 1st, President Harding sent in 2,000 troops from Fort Thomas, Kentucky, because remember, it's like right over the river who arrived at Jeffrey, Sharples, Blair, and Logan, West Virginia, two days later. And then World War I hero Billy Mitchell led an air squadron from Langley Field near Washington, D.C. to what is now Kanawha City, the, the Kanawha City section of Charleston. However, military air power doesn't really end up participating much in this battle. It doesn't end up being part of this, really, because uh-huh. multiple planes in Mitchell's squadron crashed in Nicholas County, Raleigh County, and southwestern Virginia, among other areas. And I'm just like, how the fuck, where did you find these people then? Uh-huh. Like, this is why people make so many shitty jokes about the Air Force. Like, you are the reason. <laughs> but still, once the military got involved, most of the miners surrendered. They were like, no, I am not equipped to deal with this. So some of the miners on Blair Mountain, though, continued fighting until the following day, at which time pretty much all of them surrendered or went home after at least 12 of the miners and four men from Chafin's army were killed. Mm -hmm. So while most of the miners were sent home on trains, those seen as leaders of the groups, so Keeney, Mooney, Blizzard, Wilburn, they were basically read the riot act. So the miners who served under these leaders, they vowed to never discuss the details of the march ever again as protection for themselves and each other from the authorities. Okay. And they stuck with that. So working in collaboration with private coal companies, the state assembled special grand juries. And remember, they're working with the coal companies who put them in office. So you tell me how this is going to go. 
They ended up handing down 1,217 indictments. Whoa. Against over 500 of the marchers. Hmm. And that included 325 indictments for murder, 24 for treason against the state, and then also indictments of accessory to murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Mm-hmm. The only person, again, over 500 people, the only person convicted of treason was Walter Allen, who skipped out on bail and was never captured. They didn't even bother. Wow. All right. right. So then Keeney and Mooney were acquitted of mur- murder charges, and Wilburn and his son were convicted of murdering the Logan County deputies, but they were later pardoned by Governor Howard Gore after serving only three years of their 11-year p- prison sentences, mm-hmm. because this isn't fucking right. The most prominent treason trial, fun fact, or not fun fact, like, we love a little alliteration. I can't speak today. It's fine. This was Blizzard's trial, which was held in the Jefferson County Courthouse in Charlestown, over 300 miles, or for our non-American friends, 483 kilometers away from Blair Mountain. All right. Yes, because, like, there was so much bias. Yeah. And after that trial and a bunch of others in different locations, all the charges against Blizzard were eventually dropped. Hmm. So extensive, extensive national newspaper coverage of the trial revealed the lengths to which coal companies and state officials work together to prevent these workers from or- organizing. Like, it's all there in the court records now. And yeah. that's being reported on. So there's no hiding anymore. So these motherfuckers really it backfired. But the results of Blizzard's trials served as a mandate across the U.S. that workers did have the right to unionize. They could not be charged for treason for fighting their for their own rights. And it basically it wasn't just for minors, even it was just for industrialists as a whole like this basically set the precedent. Yeah. Which is so cool. So the defeat of the miners at Blair Mountain temporarily dealt a fatal blow to the UMWA's organizing efforts in the southern coal fields. Membership dropped by half within three years. Whoa. Yeah. And both Mooney and Keeney were relatively quickly forced out of the union soon after the trials, and Blizzard wasn't removed until the 1950s. But in 1933, as a result of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal program, the National Industrial Recovery Act was passed to protect the rights of unions, which allowed for Southern coal fields to quickly be organized. Okay. So very, very, like, as soon as this was passed, the UMWA was able to just, like, get in the trenches and resume the, the work that they were doing. Yeah. So today, the Battle of Blair Mountain continues to serve as a powerful, inspirational symbol for blue-collar and lower- and middle-class workers. Um, just, it, it's, it's something for activists that they look to. Anybody, like, if you're in a union, this is, like, something that, like, if you don't know about, you should, because it's kind of like a beacon of hope. Yeah. Because uh, without these people breaking their backs and some of them dying to get basic human rights and many of them were people of color many of them were uh, just looked down upon by society yeah who knows what working conditions could look like now if yeah these people hadn't laid the groundwork to what unions can be now absolutely so it, it's just it's 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 just a stark reminder of the deadly violence that can ensue and how lucky 
we are that these people took a stand and fought for their rights and the rights of their children and their children's children. Yeah. Um, but it also shows that like when you have violence, whether it's from a labor management dispute or from say like a protest of some sort, don't know which one, but I'm sure you can think of some, um, just how local and federal government governments are so ill equipped at best and apathetic at worst mm-hmm. when it comes to the diffusal of violence and or high tension situations during protests and strikes without using weaponry and violence themselves like this was in the 1920s that they are bringing in the federal military yeah to settle this issue if only that was something that happened today during protests yeah that would be wild if they did that today, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Who would do such a thing? Fucking mother God. So, yeah, it's just, it's, I don't know. But to get into more of the pop culture side now, we're kind of already like halfway, we're wading in, but now we're like in it to win it. Matawan's downtown district was designated a national historic landmark for its role in the West Virginia mine wars, which again is why I'm like, why don't we learn about this in schools? Yeah. In 2009, Blair Mountain Battlefield was also listed in the National Register of Historic Places, but because coal mining is still a fucking thing and they still have politicians in their pockets, it was delisted after just a few months because of objections from coal companies who had permits for mining in that area. Wow. And it was not added back to the list until June 2018 after years of legal battles and protests from from advocacy groups like the Sierra Club and Friends of Blair Mountain. Hmm. So that's kind of fucked. Yeah. But then this museum that I keep talking about that everybody's like, can you just fucking mention it already? Uh, in 2015, Wilma Steele, co-founder of the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum, basically like got together her stuff and the people that she knew, like all of their s- historical stuff from this moment in history. Uh-huh. And that's just it's heirlooms, artifacts, displays, and all of this can be found in this museum, the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum in Matawan, West Virginia. And the items housed in this museum include some of the script tokens, um, the rusted remnants of an 1873 Remington carbine and bullet casings from the Battle of Blair Mountain, mm-hmm. a canary cage used by miners during this period when the birds would basically warn the miners of methane. Yep. Isn't that like you would know because the canary would die? Isn't that how it went? I, I thought it would it would kind of freak out. If Maybe it, I don't know. I don't remember. If it detected it, yeah. <laughs> um, I, it could it could freak out. It could like totally die chirping. Like we don't know. Um, please don't kill me, Peta. So there was that, and then there were oil wick cap lamps, which were basically like this. This is what I mean by them not giving a shit about human beings. So these oil wick cap lamps, they were basically like an open flame on a wick that was attached to the miners' hats, so that they could uh, see their work. Um. Not and great. they had explosions in the mines where there's sometimes methane. I'm shocked. Yeah. That's so not fucked. great. Yeah. Um, 
But this museum is one of the only surviving monuments to the struggles faced by the state's coal miners in the early 20th century. And it advocates for the West Virginia mine wars to be taught in schools. Locally, they are taught in schools. I believe from like middle school through high school, they're taught. Yeah, um, in the in the local area, it makes sense. Yes, but they're they're lobbying for more widespread teaching of this. Yeah, there should be. Yeah. And Kimberly McCoy, she's a museum guide, for, or a guide for this museum specifically, grew up in Matawan, comes from a long line of coal miners. She says of the museum, quote, children around here are generational coal mining children. They need to know how their grandparents and great grandparents struggled for them to be able to choose a profes- profession today instead of going into the coal mines at 15 years old, end quote. Yeah. So Steele, who is an activist herself and also serves as a board member for the museum in addition to being the co-founder, she also shares ban- red bandanas with activists everywhere she goes. She, she, she like fought to protect Blair Mountain. Like she's, she's going all over the place to protest like un- unsafe working conditions mm-hmm. for minors and stuff. Like she's a badass. Um, but so she shares them with these activists and it's just like she uses it as a sign for them to keep fighting. And she told the, the Saturday Evening Post, quote, the Paisley pattern on a bandana shows organic designs and geometric designs in balance. The figures in Paisley could look like a tear or a drop of blood or they could come together to form a heart. Mm-hmm. And just very uplifting, very sweet, very cute. Yeah. And then we do have some stuff you can watch. If you're into that sort of thing, um, there's a there's so there's this docu series called American Experience, but it's not like a docu series as in like they're episodic. Okay, but it's it's like a group of documentaries. Like think of it like you know the Criterion Collection. Yeah, think of it like that, except they're all produced as an American Experience, and it's through it's like a themed catalog by PBS. Okay. And so on what is technically season one, episode 28 of the American Experience series, um, they cover the West Virginia Mine Wars, um, which is just called the Mine Wars. But you can watch it. It's pretty it's pretty fucking just American experience in general is a pretty like I'm I'm a history nerd. So that's also, you know, kind of just that's like my jam. Mm hmm. also, I definitely got that wrong as I look at this, as I look at my notes, because it's season 28, episode one, because I was like, that wasn't one of their first ones. That came out when I was in, like, college. Because, <laughs> again, big fucking nerd, the fact that I catch that. But, yeah, it has a 7.9 on IMDb. You can watch it. It's pretty fucking cool. I don't think it's even too long. I think they're usually about, like, an hour, maybe two hours. Uh-huh. Um, I guess two hours is kind of long, but I think it's about like hour and a half, two hours. So you can watch that. But then the big ticket item here is Matawan, which is a 1987 film that stars Chris Cooper, who like nobody knows. He's in Little Women, for example, like the new Little Women. Okay. Um, He like he was in the Muppets. He was the bad guy in the Muppet movie with Jason Segel. He was Mr. Lawrence in Little Women. Um, he was in Cars 3. He played Smokey, if you're okay, like fucked up great. like me and you watch these things. Um, but he's got a long career. And it's like, if you look at his face, you go, oh, that guy. Uh-huh. Um, he's in it. But also James Earl Jones is in it. 
love. I know. We fuck with James Earl Jones. And then there's a bunch of other people. But James Earl Jones, man. Yeah. And, like, I'm here for it. I fuck with James Earl Jones. But, so the movie info from Rotten Tomatoes is, fil- quote, filmed in the coal con- country of West Virginia, Madawan celebrates labor organizing in the context of a 1920s work stoppage. Union organizer Joe Kenahan, Chris Cooper, a scab named Few Clothes Johnson, James Earl Jones, and a sympathetic mayor and police chief heroically fight the power represented by a coal company and Matawan's vested interests so that justice and workers' rights need not take a back seat to squalid working conditions, exploitation, and the bottom line. Hmm. All yeah, right. Very- and also as a fun fact while I was researching this, so... There's apparently, or there was maybe, I don't know if it's still going, Rotten Tomatoes used to have this like serial that was called Five Favorite Films. And they would interview like famous actors, directors, producers, writers, and ask them about the movies that like they love the most. Okay. So David Cross, who he's he's a comedian, you know him as um he was he was on um <sighs> Arrested Development, Tobias Funke. Uh, he was in fucking Alvin and the Chipmunks. He was the bad guy. He's uh-huh. married to Amber Tamblin, which is yeah. only a little creepy because he is kind of like a lot older than her. Um, and he, I believe, knew her from when she was... Anyway, so he did one of these profiles. And I will say that like he starts this off with, quote, these are not my five favorite movies. He explained they're five of my favorite movies, of which I have hundreds, end quote. Yep. But literally, number one on the list is Madawan. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yes. And he says, quote, this movie, like Badlands, a movie that's not on this particular list, is almost perfect. Not a wasted shot, piece of dialogue, moment, or frame. John Sayles has made some amazing movies, but this is my favorite of his. A beautiful, forceful movie that tells a dozen different stories wrapped around one specific, true, pivotal moment in American history. And every single actor is perfect and perfectly cast. Dang. So, like, if David Cross is saying that, I'm just going to put it out there that, like, let's do it. But, yeah, it's uh, there's no tomato meter rating, but it does have a 7.9 out of 10 on IMDb, a 92% Google score, a a 94% tomato meter rating, and a 93% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. And at the time that this, so the profile of David Cross was... Uh, published in 2012 and at the time that that was published it had a 100 percent fresh rating wow yeah paddington get fucked oh um, now yeah now i'm gonna get fucking assassinated by all the paddington stands i'm sorry i'm so sorry also choke on your marmalade but i'm so sorry <gasps> um <laughs> no i'm gonna get in so much trouble but yeah so that is the story of the west virginia coal wars well, damn. There's also a fuck ton of books, but we do not have time. Um, if you yeah. Google, if, if you like swing a cat, you will find a book on the West Virginia Cold sure. Wars. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that is that is our tale. It's very interesting. Right? It was something that like I didn't even know was a thing. And I do uh, strongly believe. I don't know if everyone had this, at least in uh, my schools. Um, particularly in elementary school, we had history class, but it was kind of everything it was yes dinosaurs and 
the Egyptians and the Roman Empire and like everything. And then once you got to um, high school, we had AP US history and then just history. Yeah. <laughs> so I yeah. feel like there really should be um, different classes from the get go for US history and world history because I think lots gets lost in the sauce. If you're trying to teach mm -hmm. everything in one class, like how can you go from like dinosaurs to the Cold Wars? Yeah. Like you need you need to have two separate classes to talk about like US history and everything else that that was going on at the time because you lose stuff like this, which is sad. Yes, well, and in that same vein, I I think also it's not necessary to spend for example two months on the american revolutionary war and then like a week on anything else <laughs> like you know what i mean yeah like it's very disproportionate and in addition to being biased it's just it's very they don't talk about all of these other moments in history like you don't really hear much about the Cuban Missile Crisis. We never learned about the Tulsa bombings. No. We never learned about Juneteenth. Nope. Like, I didn't know what it was until a couple of years ago, which is really yes, sad. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Like, we we need to have a broader, like, coverage of history. Because, yes, our country has, like, 200-something, almost 300 years of history to it but at the same time we've got like 200 something 300 something years of history not i know it's not 300 but it's like 275 or something um and we're focusing on what like a decade yeah in that in that period of time like it's just that's that's not the move my friends and also it's 245 i just did the math but and we know how I hate math, but either way, like that's 245 years of our country's history, not even including when the colonists first arrived and they massacred the Native Americans and how we don't touch on that. Yeah. yeah um, I, just but, another in the long list of like how school kind of fails you a little bit. Yeah. Like if we're and if we are counting that. So that's like 400 years of history. If we're really counting that. And no, maybe we don't need to focus on the last like 10, 20 years because a lot of us have lived it or they know enough about it from their parents and yada, yada, yada. But like, there's so much like nobody talks about how during the Reagan era, crack was planted in low income black communities. Yeah. Like our country has done a lot of really great things. There have also been a lot of really shitty things that people have done. Yeah, and, and and what's the quote is like if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it or something like yes. that. Yes. So yes, yeah. and it, it, not even just that you're doomed to repeat it, but to put anything on a pedestal like that in that it's perfect and everything is just very dangerous thinking, and it's how you get complacent. It's how you end up with a Cheeto for president. Mm -hmm. It's just it's. I, I'll get off my soapbox. I'm sorry for the tangent, but yeah. It's just we need to learn things that aren't in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Like, <laughs> right. you know we'll, what I mean? We'll learn you something. Listen, my children, and you shall hear the midnight ride of Paul Revere. Like, what I the never fuck learned about? That one. Oh, you didn't know that one? Yeah, there's a whole ass poem to it. I'll teach you after this. How no, you know I won't. That you know what? I'm going to teach song. you the Tulsa bombings. I don't know. I know the capitals. 
I know the the I can name every state in like a minute and a half. Yeah, I know every state. All right, well then go fuck. Uh, <laughs> the American education system. Anyway, everybody. um, so we have a website. It's crimeculturepodcast.tumblr.com. It is. We also have Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. And um, not LinkedIn. Not LinkedIn. Yes, and shout out to Stevie and Lucian and Mel and all of our, our listeners and our patrons. Kim. Hi, Kim. I've just, I've got like a whole list here of like all my babies that I just keep here. And I just All our friends. All our friends. And... Just, hey, welcome to the cult. And if you want to join the cult, like, please don't be shy. Join the cult. Reach out. Um, yeah. We got, we got so much love. We got so we much do. room. But currently, I have uh, such a full bladder, I'm going to piss myself. <laughs> so we're going to end this. Uh, see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye. Bye.